Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hello. This is the podcast where we take you through the tech news of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's really not just about gadgets. It's also about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. Or maybe about how technology could be used to Photoshop an image that makes you look like an accomplished athlete in order to get you into an elite university as part of a giant <laughs> college admission scam. Am I right? Am I right? right? That's how I got into exactly school. what Photoshop is for. <laughs> <laughs> and then later in the show, we'll have a very special guest, Katerina Fake. Katerina is a well-known tech entrepreneur, co-founder of Flickr. She's now a VC, and she's just launched a new podcast called Should This Exist? It's an original series from Wait What in Quartz. It's a podcast about the ways in which technology is just butting right up against our humanity. We're very excited to talk to Katerina later on in the show about everything that's going on in big tech right now and also how she really feels about photo sharing apps. But first, let's talk about the tech news of the week. Ariel, why don't you go first? Oof. Well... Some of the news that's dominated the week is very sad. Um, On Sunday, an Ethiopia Airlines flight crashed just moments after taking off, killing all 157 people on board. And this is tragic not just because it's a fatal crash, but because it's the second time in months that this particular kind of plane, the Boeing 737 MAX, has crashed unexpectedly. Last October, you may remember, there was a similarly fatal crash out of Indonesia. Um, Regulatory agencies in over 50 countries now have issued grounding orders for this type of a jet, citing safety concerns. The United States was among the last to join that ban, but finally the FAA has followed suit. Um, And while these planes are parked, investigators are just trying to figure out what went wrong in both of these crashes. 
I think it's important to keep in mind that airplanes are increasingly software-driven machines. So even takeoff and landing are now automated processes in many planes. Uh, And so in determining what went wrong in these particular flights, investigators aren't just looking at mechanical issues, but also like bugs in the code effectively. Um, That's very complex and uh, has, has a lot of people quite scared. Um, so in terms of what this means for you as a passenger, um, nobody is flying on these particular types of jets right now. Also, our colleague Ariane Marshall did some good reporting on how many 737 MAX jets there are out there and found that um, this isn't likely to cause much disruption in people's sort of regularly scheduled air travel. Um, but I think it's a good sort of reminder that uh, these machines are complicated and bad stuff happens. It's really unfortunate, too, that this is happening at a time when we're pretty much in a period of record safety levels Mm. around air travel, and air travel has become increasingly modernized. I mean, planes are built with so, so many redundancies in case things go wrong. But in this case, yeah, it's really sad. Really sad story. In other news, last Friday, right around the time when last week's Gadget Lab podcast was publishing, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts published a blog post on Medium calling for the breakup of three of the big tech companies. She called out Amazon, Google, and Facebook specifically. She called them out for establishing anti-competitive practices and stifling innovation. She called for the demerging, for lack of a better term, of some of the key companies that these companies have acquired in recent years. And she talked about separating the companies from marketplaces. And then later in an interview with The Verge at South by Southwest, Warren named Apple as well as one of the offenders in her mind. Now, there was some drama after that involving Warren placing ads on Facebook. Those ads were then removed. There was question as to why, because the ads criticized Facebook. But it ended up being a, a policy violation, they were restored. That's really not the big story here. The big story is that 2020 hopefuls are starting to call out big tech more and more, which reflects a kind of shift in attitude in how the U.S. Mm. is perceiving its highly valuable tech industry right now. And then this thread line kind of continued into this week because on Wednesday, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek wrote in a post that the company had filed a complaint with the European Commission against Apple, claiming that Apple's app store tries to deliberately disadvantage other app developers by forcing that 30% quote unquote tax on Spotify and other digital services and limiting communication to customers. So this is something that is not new. And it's interesting that Daniel Ek decided to publish this post and filed a complaint to the EU right on the heels of what Warren was saying and also right before Apple is supposed to have this media event where we're going to hear more about Apple's homegrown services. Um, But Eck and others have complained vociferously for a long time about Apple's 30% revenue share with app developers that are selling through its platform app. Um, Apple basically gets 30% of any revenue that's made from apps from its platform because justification is we run the store, we give you tons of exposure to all of these potential customers, and this is just a tax that you have to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they started to sweeten the deal a little bit a couple of years ago, make it a little bit more favorable for app developers who are able to maintain long-term subscriptions, but the developers are are saying, well, there are other ways in which you're stifling our experiences as well. For example, you can't use Siri to call up a Spotify song on your phone. And that's just one of a few examples. So right now, it's very much in vogue to uh, to punch to punch up at big tech. Yeah. And like hypothetically, if Elizabeth Warren gets elected or even as a senator succeeds in getting legislation passed that breaks up Facebook, how do you think that would affect 
us consumers who have smartphones, especially considering that, you know, just last week, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook CEO, was talking about how he wants to see the company increase interoperability between all the different products that it owns so that uh, Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook and Facebook Messenger all work more seamlessly together. Yeah, it's hard to say how that would actually impact the consumer experience, which I think is probably worth a whole other discussion and perhaps a whole other podcast with (laughs) antitrust experts, but about what the real meaning of antitrust is, right? Like, is monopolization bad because it's bad for consumers or is monopolizing an industry bad because you're hurting your competition in unfair ways and you're stifling innovation? And it seems as though without having a nuanced conversation about that and also having a very nuanced conversation about how modern day tech services work in the year 2019, um, it's hard to say whether just calling for a breakup of big tech companies would be the best solution. Mm-hmm. One thing I was saying to Ariel this morning when we were chatting about this before the pod is that one thing that I think is good about this is that it calls attention back to the big tech companies at a time just when we as consumers were starting to feel like it's our fault in a weird way. Like 2018 was the year of these app dashboards and time well spent and people saying like, get your tech life under control. And by saying, you know, you know, big tech is actually, they're, they're using some really crummy tactics and practices right now, both towards competition and towards consumers, it really puts the ball back in the court of the tech companies to say, you got to do better. This isn't just about me deleting the Facebook app off my phone. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm still on the fence as to whether or not legislation is the right way to get them to play nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's the only way to get them to play nice. But at the same time, it's like I feel like a a cultural shift and like lifestyle decisions on mass would be the thing that would probably have more of an impact on us as a society and on the company's business practices than just Washington telling them no. Just because when I when I hear about that happening, I just think that there's going to be, you know, Washington is famously slow and uh, they'll be legislating for problems. They'll be legislating to solve problems that maybe don't exist anymore. And there are new problems that need to be tackled. So I don't know. Excellent point. Well, anyway, speaking of Apple and speaking of big technology and speaking of (laughs) subscriptions, as you hinted, we found out this week that Apple is going to be having a media event on Monday, March 25th, March 2-5. Put it on your calendar. Make a note. Send a tweet to Tim Apple asking for an invitation. The event will take place at the Steve Jobs Theater at the company's headquarters in Cupertino, California. Uh, You should not expect new iPhones or any sneak peeks at the next version of iOS. The big hardware and software announcements are going to be coming later this year. Instead, expect this month's event to center around Apple's newest services. We have been hotly anticipating Apple's launch of a subscription service uh, that will let people get magazines and um, other news items delivered to them for a low, low monthly fee and a streaming service for movies and shows. And um, we don't really know much about that now, but we have an inkling of what it's going to look like. Lauren, tell us everything you know. Well, number one, I hope Oprah's there. <laughs> don't we all? We don't know if Oprah's going to be there. Can you imagine what's going to be under our seats, though, if Oprah's there? Uh, I, I don't iPhone know. cases. Yeah, probably, probably, <laughs> uh, with, like, download codes for her podcast or, or something. Uh, yeah, so this is, I think this is the event where we are going to see Apple playing catch-up 
with Amazon and Netflix when it comes to original content around streaming video. Because Apple, of course, already has a streaming video platform. You can use Apple TV, you can play all kinds of video from that. But in terms of original content, Apple's attempts so far have paled in comparison to the amount of money and the effort that its competitors are putting into original content. And we've seen that pay off in the form of Emmy Awards and Oscars for Amazon and Netflix, which are like, you know, a big badge of honor in the industry. So I think this is going to be like the event where we hear more about, I don't know, the Hollywood, the Hollywoodization of, of Apple media potentially. Yeah. Uh, also, we are expecting to hear more about this news app. It's going to be a type of aggregate news app that is based, um, okay, meta alert, inside baseball alert that is based somewhat off technology that Apple acquired from a bunch of publishing companies, including our own, an app called Texture that it bought, um, I guess it was last year or was it two years ago at this point? Uh, recently. I'm to remember. Yeah, relatively recently. So we're expecting to see some type of news subscription service that's built off of that technology. Uh, Texture, when it came out, I remember, was um, described pretty accurately as Netflix for magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you pay one fee be it $20, $25, $30, and you get access to um, magazine content from you know uh, dozens and dozens of titles, and you could read as much as you want uh, inside the app. Um, and then when you're done, you close the app and you don't own anything, but you've basically you know paid to access this library. Um, and then the company divides up the revenue that you're paying, and then you and all of your fellow subscribers are paying based on what they know is how much time readers spent reading each publication. So um, you have been able to get wired this way uh, on Texture. There are a lot of people who I know who subscribed to um, Texture and used it to read all of the wired features uh, because it's primarily magazine content. Uh, So the Netflix for Magazine company is now something that Apple owns and it's probably just going to be that, but it's probably going to look pretty good because Apple has a history of making their news and reading products look pretty good. So I don't know. Kind of excited to see it from a design standpoint. Also really excited to see what happens to the publishing industry Apple after <laughs> Apple announces it. It's like you have a personal interest in that. It's almost as if my entire career is at stake. Yes, Lauren, thank you for pointing that out. No problem. Um, hey, and it's at the Steve Jobs Theater and you're going to be there probably? I will be there along with Peter Rubin. Peter, who is both covering news for our culture team and our gear team these days. And uh, we'll have hopefully a couple more people on the ground. But we'll be, I mean, we'll be hands on. So you're going to want to come to Wired.com on March 25th. What Check is that out. What is your favorite thing about the Steve Jobs Theater? Uh, the chairs. You just feel like you're sitting in like the front seat of a Ferrari in these really? crazy leather chairs. Who's yeah. at the wheel? Are you at the wheel? It's like you're in a. It's like you're in a California tea, you know, and you've got these beautiful leather seats with like this exposed stitching or like I don't, anyway. Um, it's a beautiful theater. That's great. Well, it really is. March twenty fifth, our world will change. Why don't we bring on today's guest, Katarina Fake? Katarina Fake is the host of the new podcast, Should This Exist? A Wait What original series in partnership with Quartz. It's a podcast that explores the relationship between technology and humanity and asks whether technology can help cure the ails caused by other technology and whether a product should even exist, as its name suggests. Katarina is not just a podcast host. She's also a highly regarded tech entrepreneur and VC who has co-founded companies like Flickr and Hunch and who has made early investments in companies like Kickstarter 
Kickstarter and Etsy. And we're thrilled to have her here with us in Wired Studio in San Francisco this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank As it you turns for out, having me. You are very familiar with the building that I know in. this building because it is where I began my career on the internet. And that was where? And that was on the fifth floor at Organic Online and uh, circa 1996. Wow. wow. So in this very building. And Wired was already there. Wired had taken... Um, the lease, I think, on the fourth floor, and so was a floor below us. So I, I went down to visit. I had a bunch of friends that worked there. And Organic had been spun out of Hotwired. It was an agency that was working for clients to build their very first websites. And some of the first websites that were built here were McDonald's.com, which I actually worked on, kind of much to my surprise. I joined a company called Organic. And the very first, so naturally, McDonald's. <laughs> so naturally, the first, the first client's work um, that I worked on was McDonald's.com. Wow, you have seen some things. We have seen some things. Yeah. So your your career is a, a fun one because you've worked on the web for a long time. You've done the startup thing. You've worked with bigger companies. You invest. Um, what inspired you to launch the podcast? The podcast. The podcast is basically, it's time had come. And a lot of the things that, a lot of the conversations that I've been having throughout my career in technology, I consider myself, one of my principal jobs in this industry is humanizing technology. And a lot of the things that we've been saying kind of along the way, um, we're just falling on deaf ears. The stories were not being written. And then suddenly, the world around us changed. And I think that this conversation is so essential and is, is, is kind of crucial to the conversation, should this exist, is not a question that typically technologists ask themselves. Can this exist? Could this exist, right? How can we um, you know, gain the funding to make this exist? Those are the conversations that we've been having for the past 15, 20 years, literally, about, about technology. And technology has been um, uh, you know, kind of enjoying um, you know, this wonderful, um, you know, kind of ideation around it, about possibility, about changing the world, and this whole narrative that we've been kind of given about technology is suddenly the cracks are appearing in it. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly people are like, whoa, what have we done? Yeah. Is this actually what we wanted to build? Um, we can see the problems, all the cracks are appearing. And um, in this changing world, should this exist? is actually suddenly a question that people want to ask. One of our editors who was at South by Southwest, which we're on the heels of right now, wrote a story today about Elizabeth Warren's um, you know, onstage session. And one of the things that uh, Andrea Valdez writes about in this article is this idea of, for a while, a place like South by Southwest was where you would go to launch commercially successful products. And now we have to start thinking about, can something be successful from a societal perspective rather than just commercial and I think that's kind of what you're getting at thinking about like is this actually should this exist for the good of people and not just because it can make people a pile of money right and and you know should that be a consideration and I don't think those two I'm also a believer that those two things don't need to be mutually exclusive that Mm -hmm. you can actually build very good well thought out products that um, serve humanity and also make money I don't think that those two things are 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 enemies of one another. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's talk a little bit about the podcast itself. So far you've published three episodes at the time we're taping this pod, pods on pods and pods. So one of your episodes was uh, about a tool that reads your emotions. There was one about an AI powered bot that performs some of the functions of a therapist. There's another one about a headband that claims to make people learn things more quickly. So we're seeing a thread line here, but talk a little bit about um, the kind of stories that you're looking for when you book your episodes. The things that I think are really interesting Somehow, the, the number one, we have to have a um, an entrepreneur who is who is interested in this conversation, right? Not all not all not all entrepreneurs are, and um, you know, and I think that this is like a really important thing to bring into all tech conversations. And part of the reason behind this podcast is actually to introduce this question into the conversations that all entrepreneurs are having, not just the ones that are on our show. But to have this become part of the culture and the dialogue around building companies, should this exist? And ask yourself at, at various junctures in the evolution of your, of your company or product or service, you know, things have changed to the extent where, oh, something has changed. Should we have this feature? Should we have that feature? Should we be addressing this audience or that audience? Who is it that we should actually be building this for and why? And then also thinking through all of those um, unexpected outcomes, uh, scenario thinking, you know, a little bit of thought experiments that you can walk through in order to think through where your technology could potentially go and be aware of those things as you're building, as you're building the products. Yeah, it, it almost seems like um, a perfect moment where we're sort of breaking from this model of uh, as people often say in Silicon Valley, ask forgiveness, not permission. And the question maybe now is a little bit more like, we should be asking permission. Right. Um, or not necessarily. I mean, you know, those those two things are not, um, I don't see kind of like asking permission as actually being necessary because mm -hmm. that assumes that there's some kind of outside authority that is blocking your way. Mm right mm. you know asking permission like to have to ask permission teacher may i go to the bathroom right like you know what i'm saying that's a that's a, an authority figure that's kind of but rather to internalize that authority figure that question right we're all i'm a i'm a irrepressible optimist right and i think part of the reason that i've been a successful entrepreneur is that i have that tendency like i love possibility i love solving problems i think that we can through technology um, you know, do a lot of good. And, but I think that I'm also a reformed techno-utopian. I'm still a techno-optimist, I would say. But the awareness of, um, of, of some of these potential outcomes that we've, we've now seen manifest have been things that we have spotted many, 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 many years ago, right? A lot of the things that came to the fore during the 2016 election, we saw you know, in 2008, 2009, we saw actually a lot of the features, for example, in Facebook's activity feed, ordering them by people's attention, boom, all of the people that worked in the industry were like, bad idea. If it bleeds, it leads. Sensationalism, things that are more divisive will rise to the top. And then they changed it so that you could buy your way there. Not just people who are selling you toilet paper and potato peelers, but people who are selling you ideology could buy their way into your stream. And all of those things were known. This is not stuff, stuff that was surprising to us. We, they were foreseen. But it was buried under all of the 
meetings with Barack Obama and cover of Time magazine mm-hmm. and also and like all of I the voted stickers. They remember they did a study around the I voted stickers to see if that right. spurred more people into action. And I think it was presented largely as a good thing, you know, in, in research papers. But then it's like, well, yeah, you're telling people that you voted, and then that goes out and influences their voting. There's like a, a very obvious. Oh yeah. There's a there's a chain reaction there. Right. Right. And so you know, a lot of these conversations had been previously had, but it was it was like Cassandra in the wilderness. Right. You know, there's all of these there's all of these stories about who gets listened to. Right. The boy who cried wolf was listened to. He was listened to again and again. And then it was turned out he was lying. Right. Cassandra, kind of famously from Greek mythology, she told the truth again and again and again. But nobody listened. And that is the that is the kind of the pattern that we are we are seeing. And so suddenly I think, you know, looking back, people realize that these conversations had already been taking place but had not somehow been attended to. And that's what we're hoping to do with this podcast. I'm curious about the ways so far in which you've discovered through your podcast that technology can or can't do the thing as well as humans can do it. For example, in your Wobot episode, which is about a, basically a therapy bot to sum it up, that you talk about the therapist drift and how human therapists have this tendency, they, they adopt a tactic that ends up being a, a, a good tactic in their therapy sessions. And then they get good at it and eventually they kind of drift away from it and it no longer becomes as effective. Right. And that's a very human thing that people do. And with the, with the bot, you know, you're not expecting that same kind of behavior to happen. No. Right? So like, talk about instances in which so far you've learned like, yeah, we don't have to worry about a bot replacing us at that, at that thing yet at, at, because humans are actually better at this than tech. Right. Well, I mean, that was that was kind of one of the kind of the central conversations at that episode was at which point, you know, at what things are computers better than people? And in, in which kind of context is it appropriate for a machine to do the work that a human can't do? Machines are awake 24-7. Right? Number one. They're, they're always available to you, and you can have a therapist at your fingertips any time of day or night. And this is something that people can't do. So that's, a, that's one example. Number two, um, they're absolutely inexhaustible. You can wear your therapist out by, by you know, I don't know, kind of like endless, tedious, you know, you're just like, you know, you're, 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 you're a therapist sitting there like, oh, God, God. If they would only just get over themselves and just, you know, yeah, they have every, feelings too. <laughs> they, they're people right? too. So you know, your 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 bot could be endlessly compassionate and patient and present and listening to you and just to you, in a way that you know oftentimes are better than people, right? And then um, you know, also in this particular kind of therapy, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's repetitive questions. Do you really believe that? Let's think about this in a different way. Like the questions that you ask are really repetitive. They go on and on and it's kind of like basically a list of, it's like a questionnaire even. And so CBT when delivered by actual human beings is a little bit boring, right? And so in that, in that sense, um, you don't get the drift. You don't get, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the retention kind of drifting as well. You don't get any of that. And um, in that regard, it's probably an incredible, incredibly powerful tool. Um, on the other hand, 
as um, my guest Esther Perel said during the interview, artificial intelligence also can stand for artificial intimacy. And that in these very human interactions, are we, are we crippling ourselves, right? Are we using this prosthetic human-esque interaction to replace actual react, like kind of responses from actual people who are flawed, impatient, bored, all of those things that I just previously identified as flaws are actually just built into humans. And shouldn't we be tolerating that? And shouldn't we be um, embracing all of those idiosyncrasies and flaws because they're just human and they're not machines? And I think this is, I mean, all of these questions are really what we're getting down to. The heart of all of these technologies is such an interesting question, right? Mm -hmm. Like what part of our humanity do we want to preserve? Which part of it, right? And what are we losing in our interactions becoming easier, more convenient, right? I think, I think we're sort of seeing that, you know, in society, uh, like you were saying before with Facebook and the way that that's changed the way that we, that we interact with one another. Um, something that I'm curious about is that you, you're a VC, you're in the VC world, Yes, VC. Is that the name of the firm? Yes, VC. I'm an investor with Yes, VC. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, you know, you, I'm sure you see a lot of pitches, a lot of things that you probably ask yourself, should this exist? But I'm wondering what you see as the role uh, that VC in particular is playing in getting some of these projects greenlit, getting some of these projects funded mm -hmm. that maybe should not be funded. Mm -hmm. The craze and like that race towards, you know, the big exit may be actually the thing that is putting more bad tech into the world than, than good tech. Oh, certainly. And I do think that there's a lot of patterns that you can see in venture capital as it exists today that are um, beholden to a blitz scaling model, to use the kind of the current term, um, that are actually very destructive to companies that are serving a different audience or not growing so fast, or as it's just a completely different way of building a, a business, a more thoughtful business, right? And um, structurally, VC is expected to invest in a hundred companies, of which one is a unicorn and five are moderately successful and the rest die. You know, that's not necessarily the proportion, but like that's the kind of approximate ratio of your investments paying off, right? And this is why all of the energy and money and um, enthusiasm and press is around these very few companies, right? When, when in fact, there's hundreds and hundreds of companies of them. And I, you're sitting across from a very atypical venture capitalist. When you look at me, what do you say? You're a woman. Yes. <laughs> right? And so I think that I actually look at investing in a completely different way. I think that the pool of people that are getting in touch with me who are interested in having Yes VC as an investor are just a very different pool of people. And I knew that as, as an entrepreneur, even as an entrepreneur and a founder of my own startups, that 
I I was very um, kind of you know I, I kind of knew that all of the engineering departments would complain that there's just no there's no women out there there's no women in, on, engineers out there they're really difficult to hire we can't find them and I was like. I probably reject more female entrepreneurs in a week than you probably see all year because it's just you're getting that what's available, of right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, I do think that part of the reason that you know we just started SVC a year ago, but part of what encouraged me to do that was because it felt as if the tide the tide was turning, that different people could be VCs. There's this whole kind of micro. VC microfund movement. It's kind of very much smaller, early stage funds like Yes VC or a very early stage fund that um, made it possible for those venture capital firms to be foundationally built on different principles with different people and um, look towards the future instead of in being mired in the past. So I saw this as a huge opportunity. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And I went up and down Sand Hill Road and I was kind of, you know, kind of being recruited to all of these kind of firms that have existed for, you know, 20, 30 years, some of them. And I didn't want to be, you know, we all know what tokenism is, right? Like tokenism is when you want to perpetuate your power structure, but there's pressure for you to adapt. So you bring in one, maybe two people of color or women to join your firm in order to continue to be sexist and, you know, to to kind of basically protect your power. And it's just a it's just a way of kind of allowing one or two people to succeed so that you have plausible deniability and moral license to continue to protect what you what you've got. So what are the, some of the companies that are interesting to you right now? What are you looking for when people come pitch you? By the way, <laughs> would you ever consider that maybe you get a lot of pitches because you have an affirmative in your name? Like, I wonder if people are looking like, how to get VCs to say yes? <laughs> and then yes, VC comes up. Comes up. <laughs> if that were the case. You know, it's funny. When, I, when, we first launched, launched the, um, when we first launched the firm, there was a, a bit of pushback. I, 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 I was uh, kind of part of the founding team of another uh, venture fund, Founder Collective, um, uh, nine years prior, prior. and um, they especially were very um, kind of, uh, you know, they thought it was a really bad name. You know, you you know that your job is actually saying no most of the time. I was like, yes, I'm aware, I know. Um, That's what makes it a good name. Which I thought, which I thought, and so, um, but where it had come from, part of the part of the story that um, kind of is behind this is that. I had I had found on Pinterest a quote that was attributed to me. It was like a picture of me, and then it said, um, <laughs> and, and I was surprised by that. It was so, so wonderful. I tracked it down. It was from an interview that I had done with Inc. Magazine in 2013, and I was talking about how Esther Dyson had invested in Flickr, um, my first startup. And um, what I said during that interview was, when you're an entrepreneur, all you hear is no. It's no, 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 no. So when you hear a yes, you have to go after that yes as hard as you can, right? And, um, you know, so I wrote a blog post introducing the firm. And it's, you know, it's kind of what I talked about, like you're swimming through the sea of no in order to reach the beach of yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, we want to be, you know, we want to kind of be there, right? That's not to say 
that there's not a lot of entrepreneurs that are swimming in the sea of no. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that are continuing to, to, to swim in the sea of no. But there's yeses out there for you. And it may not be the yes from the VCs. It may not be the yes from... Um, you know, the rock star, I hate that word, um, the kind of really amazing engineer that you were trying to hire. That the, the yes may not come from the expected place. But figure out where your yeses are coming from, right? Who is saying yes to the thing that you want? And if everybody's saying no, you're maybe on the wrong track. So there what kind may of be a yes out there for you somewhere else. I'm sorry to interrupt. What kind of ideas are you saying yes to these days? What companies are interesting? So we have a portfolio now. We're, we're very small and we have, we have just started out. And um, one of the things that we look for is actually things that have around them movements, things that we feel that there's a large cultural change happening. Um, because we looked at our prior investments and we realized that they were often part of movements. So, for example, Cloudera. Um, was one of my prior uh, prior um, investments, and it came from the open source movement. Etsy was part of the handmade DIY movement, and and honestly, I think as a company came to represent that movement. Um, you know, Kickstarter, crowdfunding, like all of the, them have a, have these patterns. So we do look for. Um, you know, what we see as being cultural patterns. So here's an example of one of our investments that we looked at and we feel is part of a, a cultural pattern, a cultural movement. Um, there's, there's unbelievable amount of marketing that is being thrown at us every day, almost constantly. And the, um, there's this kind of desire for cognitive defense, I would say, to filter stuff out, to not be bombarded all the time with messages and and, and, and communication and marketing. And so we believe that, um, you know, people want to simplify their lives. And, you know, a friend of mine actually sent me a picture of her husband's um, products. Like he had, like his Apple computer had um, duct tape over the logo and he had a Patagonia bag and it had electrical tape over the logo. Like he was just kind of like eliminating all of this advertising that's happening to you in your own home right? It makes sense that your shampoo would be trying to attract your attention from the Walgreens or the Rite Aid shelf. But do you really want to be marketed to in your own shower? No, you don't. You want to simplify. You don't want to be messy. So anyway, we have an investment in a, in a, a company called Public Goods. They have very simple products. They are organic. They have very consistent um, kind of product design. They're extremely simply designed. They're direct to consumer, so you don't have to go to Walmart, you know, or Target to get your products. And it arrives at your house, and they have kind of basically consumer goods. So basically what that means is you've eliminated all of that complexity that you have to deal with, all this cognitive complexity that you're constantly dealing with. And you just reorder it when you're done, and it just kind of arrives at your door. And so we, we really believe that this is a kind of a movement, and we're looking for things that, that kind of like do that for you. And not in some kind of um, artificial way. That, I mean, this is honestly one of, the, one of the topics that we is kind of central to the podcast, too, is, you know, a lot of problems are caused by technology. Is it proper to use technology, you know, to cure the tech? 
technological problems that we've created for ourselves, right? Like, like you know, we can do that, but is we should really look at the root of the problem that the tech is subsequently solving. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I when I hear you describe this sort of interest in investing in companies that sort of feel like they're cultivating a movement, it feels like there's a really fine line between doing that in a way that feels genuine and useful and sort of feeding into this VC hype cycle that is sometimes disingenuous. I mean, I recently have been writing a lot about sleep tech, which I think is an interesting example there where there are some companies that are genuinely trying to solve an issue with people feeling tired or, or restless or um, like they're not getting enough energy in their day. And there are a lot of companies who are just trying to create foist a gadget upon you. Um, <laughs> right. And it feels like that's a space where there is both a sort of right. collective need for better sleep, but also a hype cycle around selling people sleep that VCs are very hungry to, to fund and companies are very right. eager to take the money for. And so we have like, for example, that kind of related to that, we have an invest, we have an investment in a company which is um, educational toys mm-hmm. and they're developmentally appropriate toys that are that come by subscription at developmental stages in your baby's life. So at six months, at 12 months, at 18 months, they have toys that are appropriate to the motor skills that you're learning or the cognitive skills that you're learning, right? But they're wooden Mm -hmm. and cloth, and they're just actually kind of fairly straightforward. Now, it's a direct-to-consumer company, right? It's out of Boise, Idaho. It had a very successful um, entrepreneur who had created a baby food company um, previously. And and I just think that this is a, in some ways, there's a tremendous movement again away from kids putting an iPad in front of their toddler. People don't want to do that. They feel bad about that. It, it makes them feel guilty. Um, they're very unhappy about this being the toy that they're giving their kid. And so in some ways, that is its own movement, mm-hmm. which is a different kind of company and a different way of approaching you know, child development and not giving them an app. I wonder how you think about Amazon, because you're mentioning a lot of direct-to-consumer companies, and you also have invested in Etsy, which is a marketplace, uh, and competes with Amazon in some ways. So like, when, you, when you're investing in these companies, are you thinking, like, what's, what's your Amazon strategy? Like, how are, you, how are you going to effectively convince people to buy DTC and not just like go to Amazon and type in some home goods and get everything sent to them that way? That's funny, because I actually, in many ways, do not think about that. Really? It's not a thing that I think about. And I would say that the reason for that is that when I have been successful in the past, it has been because I was somehow, if not actually ignorant, but willfully ignorant about how things are habitually done. And everybody circa 2003, this is my, my first experience with my first startup, everyone said, oh, photo sharing is, compl- is over. It belongs to Ophoto, it belongs to Snapfish, and it belongs to Shutterfly. Shutterfly is going public, Ophoto is part of Kodak. You have no choice, it is done, right? And um, that was the received wisdom. That's what everybody believed was the case. And we went out and innovated on this thing that we, category that frankly we didn't know very much about and hadn't really thought through the big behemoths, you know, the, the, the big companies that were out there that were inevitably going to eat our businesses 
I just didn't think about that, right? Because I'm an early stage investor. And where all of the innovation comes from is not by like, oh, well, my me and my three-person team are going to compete with the largest consumer packaged goods product in the entire universe. Like, it's ridiculous. You can't. You're not you're not in the position to do anything vis-a-vis Amazon. You've lost that game already. And so to me, like the, the, the important thing I think for entrepreneurs to really be thinking about is um, you know, their immediate environment actually solving an existing problem, having very a clear-eyed idea. You can look at you know, people's behavior vis-a-vis how, where do they buy things and how do they buy things and why do they buy things and you know, why, is, why is Amazon so successful? But you're not really competing with Amazon. I mean, maybe somewhere down the road, if you're wildly successful, you are. But yeah, yeah, or if you're wildly successful, you're listing on there, and then you have to deal with them just placing ads like way above your listing. Exactly, yeah. and it's you know, and it's no logopsony because they mm-hmm. will then dictate to you what your prices are and what your product is, and you know, your your life cycle has potentially ended. So you bring up Flickr, and we definitely wanted to talk to you about Flickr. I mean, did you have any sense? It sounds like you did have a sense that photo sharing was not dead. But did you ever have a sense that it would evolve into this like Instagram level of photo sharing that we experience now? Oh, yeah. No, it was very clear, actually, that that would be the case. And it was also very clear that I was a blogger. I was a very early blogger. And I started my blog at Katarina.net in 1998. And there wasn't even blogging software back then. Um, it was very early. So, but it was very clear also that um, photographs were takeable by anybody. Anybody can take a photograph. And it's a way of communicating. It's a way of connecting. It's a, it's a great kind of means of, um, you know, kind of uh, engaging in conversations with people across great distances, which is what the internet excels at. That's what it's good at. And um, Flickr was very much conceived of as a product that would fulfill that, that need and that kind of need for communication. It was an online community. And I think that this is a very significant thing that is not actually noted in the annals of history. Because we came from a community background. My background was an online community. I had grown up in the well. I had learned from Howard Rangold. I was very much part of this culture. Um, but at some point, Subsequent to, and I would say sometime around 2007, 2008, people started calling what I called online community social media. What that meant was you no longer had to be connected to anybody. You could be a passive consumer. You no longer had to participate. You were no longer engaged in conversations with the people that were around you. You were eyeballs. You were, it was media. It was a container in which media was put, and they could sell column inches, and they could sell. All of this changed when it became renamed social media. The business models changed, right? The, um, all of the things that had been built into the fabric of Flickr vanished just like that. You don't really count renaming. MySpace as part of that? So yeah, that yeah. was like, okay, okay. Ish, but you know how MySpace started, right? Which was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was a weird internet company out of L.A. called, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it yes, was an they, internet they advertising sold, company. They um, sold people's data mm-hmm. to corporations in order to sell them ads. Right. Right? And had actually gone out 
um, and used MySpace as a way of collecting information about people to better market to them. What an interesting story <laughs> when we talk about people should early dig social into, media. People should dig in a little bit of oh. early social media because yeah. they were actually a internet marketing, now known as spam, company. Yes. Prior to starting MySpace, which was a, which was a, a data gathering, data harvesting mm. strategy. But what you're saying is when the when social media became the thing that now we see as Facebook, where it became this this space online for people to place ads and effectively lurk, that's when that's when you saw this shift happening. Yes, because Flickr was a product and is again today, right? Under the auspices of SmugMug, its new owner, was a service that you paid for. You paid for the service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You were not being sold to advertisers. You paid for the service. And that was that was a very strong kind of business. So it's a different business model. When you want social media, you will tolerate sexism. You will tolerate racism. You will tolerate divisive political positions. Because what you want is people's attention. You want to gather it. You want to keep it. You want to appropriate all of the time that they've got and put them on your service. That is what media is and does. And an online community, which you pay to participate in, $5 a month or whatever we figure might be palatable to um, a service that presumably would be very valuable to you, is a completely different business model. Unfortunately, though, in paying for some of those protections doesn't necessarily mean you're totally protected because there was a report in NBC this week by Olivia Salone, I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, a great investigative report about how photos that had been put on Flickr and then were put under the Creative Commons bucket, which yeah. is a way for people to put their Flickr photos out there for the world to use for creative, non-commercial purposes. Um, it's generally seen as a good thing in artists and media community. Those were being used, it turns out, to power facial recognition engines. And um, It was so, actually what it was, so I can t- mm, give you a little bit great. of history. This yes. actually was on the board of Creative Commons um, for many years and, was a, um, and continued to be a huge proponent of open culture and sharing and kind of sharing in the kind of the actual sense. And so much good has come out of the Creative Commons licensed photos, um, you know, and tremendously um, kind of outweighed. And so Olivia got in touch with me a couple weeks ago and she said, did you know that um, this batch of photos, which had been released deliberately and on purpose by the Yahoo um, research department in order to use it for facial recognition software, in violation of what is mostly the kind of um, uh, Creative Commons licenses that were already kind of existing on those photos, which had um, restrictions for non-commercial use, for non-attribution, for all of these things. This is why that story became big, is because it was probably, and I'm guessing here, um, you know, because I actually don't have the actual information, that less than 1% of photos that are put on Flickr have a license on it that would permit this to be used in this manner, right? And so this was yet again a large tech company appropriating private data clearly against and kind of in violation of the contract. Now, it's also true that, um, you know, I have sat on the board of Creative Commons and I also know that copyright is an extremely poor tool to use for privacy 
you need a completely different set of rules around privacy that copyright is just not designed to address. And so what you're seeing is a lack of legislation and regulation around privacy that in a world of people trying to acquire enough data to educate their facial recognition software and other AI products that they're building can do so without any restrictions because those laws do not exist. That is what is really going on. In so you're story. saying we can't, we can't rely on the tech companies to make the right decisions. The tech companies should be making the right decisions. The but, tech companies should be making the right mm -hmm. decisions. However, would you would you rely on the tech companies to make those decisions? No. Yeah, it's 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 displaying a, a lack of understanding of like the mechanics of how that stuff works. Licensing people posting things under a, a term of service. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you would hope that the tech companies would do the right things. However, I think our experience has shown us that that has not been a good bet. Yeah, and as Olivia's reporting shows, even when she went to IBM and asked them what exactly they're they're doing with their research partners and whether that's for commercial use or whether it's just for academic research, the answers were murky. And right, and you know, and and honestly, the um, you know the entire structure of you know kind of how that whole thing. Frank, frankly, this was a very um, kind of there's a million photos, right? And I'm not sure how many trillions of photos are actually on Flickr, but it's probably a lot. So, and of course, 14 of them were mine. <laughs> Just 14? Just 14. What are those 14 photos? Those 14, I have no idea because it's a black box, right? Like that was kind of part. Like I posted about this on Twitter. You know, like 14 of my 14 of my photos are being used in this. Because and um, NBC, I think, usefully built a tool. They did. There's a little in which you can see if any of your Creative Commons licensed yeah. photos were on there. And I know that nobody has gotten in touch with me for having attributed any of my Creative Commons photos um, to me in this kind of research. So what gives? Tech in 2019. Folks. Tech in 2019. The creator right. of I mean, Flickr honestly, is right. years later realizing her Flickr photos, under which she put under a very specific bucket of Flickr usage, is being used to power IBM's facial recognition technology, and it all comes full circle. Right. And who knew? Like, and so you know, this was you know wonderfully actually happened the day before our Should This Exist episode mm -hmm. on facial recognition software was coming out. So it kind of, it all comes full circle because that conversation was not something that was live in 2004 or five or six or whenever those photos were posted. This was not even a idea that people had, you know, that, that, that you'd be training facial recognition software 15 years later, just not part of our awareness, right? So, you know, this is why this conversation is happening now, because I think that one of the things that's really interesting about Should This Exist is that there are so many technologies and so many industries that are being built right now that are not established, that have not, um, you know, they don't have their major players yet. AI, like we're at the cusp of AI and AI's, you know, different manifestations. There's a thousand different manifestations of, of AI that we're looking at. And um, we're at the very beginning of that cycle. 
And that's why we want to have these conversations now, right? Because you can think through some of these potential outcomes. We've seen it happen now. We've been through enough of these cycles to be able to identify some of the unintended consequences of the things that we're building and can ask those questions now and not live with the results of our bad decision making 15 years from now. It sounds like a lot of entrepreneurs should be listening to your podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> should we go on yes. to recommendations? Yeah, maybe before we move on to recommendations, where can people find the podcast? So um, it's on Apple Podcasts or, frankly, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, it's called Should This Exist? Just, just enter it into your search bar and there it will be. And if you have a if you have a podcast client on mobile, I have noticed. I'm happy to tell you that it is in the top trending, you know, leaderboard hmm. uh, pretty much every time I look. So, <laughs> congratulations on your early success. Thank you, thank you. It's been great. Um, so let's move on to the recommendations portion of the program. Okay. And we're going to keep you around for this because we want to hear something that you recommend. Uh, usually, every week we ask our guest to recommend uh, something that they've experienced recently that they would, uh, you know, like the listeners to know about. It could be a piece of media, it could be a book, uh, a podcast, a movie, a television show. Uh, it could be a place that you uh, recently went. It could be a recipe that you cooked, just about <laughs> anything you can think of. Oh my goodness, okay. Well, I'm my background is in literature and I have a huge stack of books. In fact, I'm, I'm one of those people that there's more books in my room than pretty much anything else. They're just stacked around my bed. And I, I like old forms. I, I actually do have a Kindle, but I don't use it except when I'm traveling, when I can't carry all of the books around me with me. With me. So um, obviously, I think I have to recommend a book, but I'm, I'm kind of blanking out because I read so many books. Okay, so I'm going to go to Goodreads just to kind of talk through some of the books that I have been reading lately. I feel like you're one of those people who creates what we here at Wired have coined uh, literary FOMO, which is that <laughs> you look at someone someone's Goodreads, Goodreads page, someone like yourself, and it creates this overwhelming sense of guilt that we're not reading enough. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've done, <laughs> it's true. It's good. It's aspirational. It's true. To be more but like I you. think you got to start where you are. And basically the way that you do that is you spend less time on your computer and you carry with you a little notebook that says on the cover WNO, which stands for when next online. And then every time that you have this idea, oh, I have to email Raj, or what was the second album, um, what was the third song in the second album of Nirvana, right? Like all those things that could go through your mind and you have instant access to and you can kind of just like thousand things like that. So you write this, like you keep this little- shaped box. Hearty box. No, no, wait. Um, he knows the answer. Come as you are. Come as you are. I forgot about bleach. Second, let's see, let's see, let's see. Wow. When next? When, does, when next around, Mike? We, w and when next a. near Mike, um, who is encyclopedic knowledge apparently of um, of some of these things. So just to give you a sense of of what I read, um, right now I'm actually reading a book about um, AI. But um, but previously, I was reading this book about um, Proust. And the mm -hmm. thing that was interesting about this book about Proust is that it was a class that was taught by prisoners of war, Polish prisoners of war in a Soviet work camp that um, 
their 20,000 officers in the Polish army had all been killed. And for some reason, 384 of the officers had been saved and were all put together in the Soviet prison camp. And they decided that they would teach courses to one another, courses on music, courses on poetry, courses on literature, in extremis, in this really terrible situation in which they found themselves, in the gulag. And this book was the lectures of the guy who loved Proust. And I love Proust. And so I read these, like, it was just a beautiful book. That was the last wow. thing that I read. I read that yesterday. What's, what's that called? It's called Lost Time, Lectures on Proust in a Soviet Prison Camp. What's your recommendation, Ariel? Uh, listeners to this podcast may be familiar with my ongoing quest to understand my own mortality. Um, you may be familiar with uh, one of my favorite recommendations of all time, the We Croak app, which reminds you five times a day that you are going to die. Um, I have really enjoyed that experience because it, it does help me put down my phone or it does help me reconsider what I'm doing on my phone when I get these random push alerts. Uh, but I didn't have something like that on my computer until recently, uh, <laughs> which is a Chrome extension called Death Clock, which every time I open a new tab, uh, similarly reminds me of my own mortality. Um, let's see. Amazing. I'll open it. It tells you how many days and hours you have left. That's correct. So you uh, install the Chrome extension, you enter your birthday, and then using sort of basic life expectancy estimates, um, it will tell you how many days, hours, minutes you have left. Right now, it says I have 18,301 days, 8 hours, 3 minutes, and 20 seconds left. I better make them count. I have like 11,000 <laughs> days left. Wow. Make them count, Mike. I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> anyway, Mike, uh, how are you going to make those count? Uh, you, oh, is this is supposed to be a segue? Am I, or do you really want my philosophical outlook on like my waning uh, mortality? Either one. Okay. Well, all right. So my recommendation is uh, something that I have uh, at least two of you, if not all three of you in the room, to thank for. And it uh, you've all turned me on to Esther Perel's podcast, which is called How Should We Be- Where Should We Begin? Where Should, called, we, begin? Where should we Begin? Um, Katerina, she is a frequent guest on your show. Uh, when we first started listening to your show, uh, Ariel really brightened up because Esther was on the show, and then Lauren also got excited about it, so I had to dive in and start listening. Uh, I listened to a couple of episodes of the second season. She is a relationship therapist, and basically what the show is is her doing therapy sessions with a microphone in the room. Um, You hear her talking to real people, uh, about their real problems uh, in the bedroom or with the relationship. And she um, talks through that with them and gives them advice. And it's fascinating. It's very bizarre. Uh, but also, like you know, it's, it, it might be kind of frightening to have, you know, sort of be a fly on the wall in such an intimate conversation. But uh, she does a really good job with it. And her producers, they, they do a really good job with the show. Uh, so I can definitely recommend that you go back and start listening to seasons one and two because season three is coming out very soon. The trailer for season three just dropped. So you have a couple of weeks before the new episodes start arriving and you should start listening to it now. 
So Esther Perel's podcast, and it's spelled Esther, but she pronounces it Esther. 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 Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm blowing it. Yeah, and I I will say I am obsessed with her podcast as well and have listened since it first came out. Um, It's such a joy to hear her in conversation with you, Katerina, because it's this very different context in which she brings her expertise to technology and is fascinating and a wonderful source on and how it affects our relationships with other people yes right oh she's yes it's great uh lauren your turn my recommendation this week earlier this week i had the opportunity to go to the san francisco premiere of the inventor out for blood in silicon valley which is new alex gibney directed documentary that's going to be on hbo starting march 18th about the saga we can never get enough of Theranos and the story of Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, now, if you've read John Carreyrou's book about this, John Carreyrou was the Wall Street Journal reporter that ended up breaking open breaking open the story of Theranos and uh, basically the massive fraud that the company was. Um, then the documentary by Alex Gibney might not might not reveal anything especially new to you because the narrative is pretty much the same. But it does let you see and hear from some of the whistleblowers who were involved, some of the early Theranos employees. Um, There's a lot of footage of Elizabeth Holmes and her walking through labs and seemingly appearing to be official and having that um, but vaguely creepy, unblinking stare. Um, and, you know, some internal meetings and you're sort of seeing the team get rallied up and they're like dancing to can't touch this and all this stuff. And like, you know, they're really, they're really sort of like be part, you see the inside of the Silicon Valley hype cycle. And then ultimately it all comes crashing down. And this is the, this is the HBO, HBO documentary about this. So if you have the chance to see it, you have HBO, I highly recommend checking it out. One of the things I learned from this was the voice which I thought was fascinating. Yes. What about the voice? That, so, she has a baritone voice, or so you would think, from, but actually, she doesn't. It's, it's put on. It's an assumed voice. So she speaks in this very low baritone voice, which, I have a very low voice, and, and people have said, oh, well, you know, you sound, you sound good on radio, because you have this, this low voice. But she didn't have a low voice, but assumed a low voice. And then occasionally it would, would slip. forget or yeah. slip or she'd <laughs> have too much to drink. And then suddenly her real voice would come out, which was a much higher voice of a much younger sounding woman. Wow. And you also get a sense from the documentary of her, the talking points that she used mm-hmm. and how she used them repeatedly in public appearances. There's this one sort of montage where, you know, like Alex Gibney or the editor of the film very skillfully just kind of starts to overlay all of these sound bites of her. Charlie Rose, TED Talks, all, you know, like this interview, that interview where she's telling the story about her uncle, how he died and it really inspired her to like, you know, and I'm like, now I'm making fun of her voice. Uh, you know, like... Okay. Uh, but and also when people repeat things and don't vary their story much, it's often an indication of lying or obfuscation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just, you're mm-hmm. just, you're literally telling a story at that point because then you're just repeating the story over right. and over again rather than right. it being an authentic sort of retelling right. or of... kind of responding mm-hmm. organically or dynamically to mm-hmm. the questions that you're asked. So were you at the premiere? Did, were you I missed day? it. I'm actually on the board of Sundance. Oh, okay. But... Yay. Had no had no opportunity to see it because I can't. I, there's so many movies and it was such an amazing season actually of you know kind of uh, Sundance this year. So 
Well, Alas. after after the premiere on Monday night in San Francisco, Ina Freed, who's been a guest on this podcast before, did a panel with uh, four people. Gibney, the director, um, Jesse Dieter, who's one of the producers of the film, Tyler Schultz, who is one of the key whistleblowers in the Theranos story, and then Dr. Phyllis Gardner, who is a professor at Stanford, who from the start had told Elizabeth Holmes that what she was trying to do was not possible and expressed a lot of um, you know legitimate anger at the way Theranos unfolded and had some very choice words. Um, so it was a great panel, but um, unfortunately, I don't think all of you can see that, but if you can see the film, check it out. Should Theranos exist? Should, yeah. <laughs> Should Theranos exist, Katarina? As the concept for the product? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yes, VC. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but as actually um, kind of it turned out to not have been possible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, tell everybody how they can find you on Twitter and Goodreads. I am. <laughs> I am. Um, I am at Katarina. I, I um, early adopter, and hey. so I got my first name. <laughs> OG. 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 And uh, it's spelled, my spell check name is Catering. So it's Katarina spelled like catering with an A at the end. Nice. Uh, Lauren, you are? At Lauren Good with an E at the end. I am at Part Esoteric. I am at Snack Fight. And you can talk to all of us by tweeting at Gadget Lab, which is, you know, that's our feed. Um, and thank you, Katarina. This has been great having you on the show. It was super fun. All right. We'll have you back when you do season two. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Great. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.